0: Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. I'm also a board certified lactation consultant and a co founder of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine.
1: And I'm Karen Bodnar. I am an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harbor UCLA Medical Center. And a general pediatrician. I'm also a board certified lactation consultant, and this podcast is sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine.
0: Just so you know, the content of our podcasts does not necessarily reflect official policies or protocols of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Are you ready to go? Hey, Karen, how's it going?
1: Really great. How are you?
0: Good. Did you have fun at the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine? meeting recently in Chicago
1: I did the weather was beautiful and I always love this meeting it is so exciting to be at an interdisciplinary meeting where so many people are working on this um, on issues related to breastfeeding medicine
0: absolutely and the people are so much fun I think we all have so much in common too Mm -hmm. so let's talk about some of the highlights of the meeting um, especially for people who are not able to be there Um, I think I'll start if that's okay Sounds perfect. Yeah. So one lecture that I really enjoyed from the meeting was Dr. Butani's lecture. And Dr. Bhutani um, is a professor of pediatrics and neonatology at Stanford, and he's a world-renowned bilirubin expert. As you and I know, Karen, he's the lord of bilirubin since we all use his well-known Bhutani curve for tracking newborn bilirubins. I think probably every hospital has that posted on all the cabinets at the nurse's station in the in the newborn units. So for some of you who are listening, bilirubin is a byproduct of the breakdown of the red cells and other waste in the infant's blood. Infants have to get rid of this bilirubin through their liver, and it's pretty common for babies to become yellow or jaundiced because the newborn liver is a little sluggish uh, at this job early on, especially for babies who are under 37 weeks so first he reviewed the history of investigations and theories regarding newborn jaundice, which was pretty interesting because the theory that a prolonged type of jaundice called breast milk jaundice is due to breastfeeding in and of itself came up during the 1960s when breastfeeding was at its lowest. And so these breastfed babies who became jaundice stuck out like sore thumbs and people thought, aha, well, breastfeeding is the cause of their jaundice. And what we're talking about is this type of jaundice which has been labeled breast milk jaundice, which is a prolonged jaundice that lasts more than a few weeks. And it's been observed for so many years that formula-fed babies are much less likely to become jaundiced. So, he talked about how that led researchers to look for substances in breast milk that made it harder for babies to get rid of bilirubin, and they thought for sure that some women had something in their breast milk that made it difficult for babies to get rid of bilirubin through their livers. Well, now we know that that phenomenon of prolonged jaundice in newborns has more to do with genetic differences in infants' liver metabolism and not to breastfeeding. And so it's actually sort of a variant of normal. And the only reason we don't see it in formula-fed babies is because these babies are already getting the treatment for it, which is uh, something that's in cow's milk protein, uh, which is called casein. The the cow's milk protein has a substance called L aspartic acid that basically fixes the infant's liver ability to get rid of bilirubin easier. And these the babies who are prone to prolonged breast milk jaundice have Um, a liver mutation, which many of us know as Gilbert syndrome. And as a family doctor, because I see kids when they get older and they grow up and they start to do adult type things, I see this mutation quite often. And when I mean by adult type things, I mean going out on the town, drinking a bunch of alcohol and looking a little yellow in the morning. And if I do a blood test, I see a slightly high bilirubin. I also see it in adults who become sick with nausea and vomiting, they come in looking pretty peaked and also a little yellow. And so that's really the consequence of having Jill Bears for the most part. But what's interesting is that right now we still have this ongoing um, tendency among physicians to give breastfed babies formula to break the jaundice cycle when these breastfed babies have prolonged jaundice. But Dr. Butani suggested that we might be seeing an oral medication that's made up of L-aspartic acid that can be given to babies with prolonged jaundice in order to break the cycle of jaundice rather than having to give these babies formula. So that's something for us to look forward to. And it really emphasizes how it's not necessary to to, uh, stop breastfeeding. Breastfeeding is normative. This is a normal consequence in babies who have this mutation of Gilbert syndrome.
1: That's really good news.
0: It is good news, and and it just brings us, you know, it's it's uh, we shouldn't be calling it breast milk jaundice. We should be calling it jaundice of Gilbert syndrome. Very interesting. So, what do you have, Karen? What did you like about the meeting?
1: So, um, I really enjoyed hearing um, Dr. Pamela Behrens from the University of Texas Medical School give a great review of breastfeeding and birth control. Um, I really enjoy hearing her speak because she is really familiar with all of the evidence and she's really pragmatic. And so she started off um, briefly reviewing the endocrinology of lactation, and I always need that review. Um, not being somebody who takes care of pregnant moms, she reminded us that during pregnancy, estrogen, progesterone, and prolactin are increased, and it's the withdrawal of the progesterone and the estrogen um, that are necessary to initiate um, galactogenesis too and increased milk synthesis. And um, she also went on to describe that for women who breastfeed, the hormones that control the ovaries, the gonadotropins, return to normal levels about three weeks after birth, but it's not completely known why the ovaries do not resume ovulation. And there's some theories about that. But what I took away was that prolactin levels during that time um are not necessarily that much more elevated for lactating women. They drop substantially. And lab tests for prolactin are not helpful for predicting fertility. And this is relevant later when she talks about the lactational amenorrhea method. Um, She discussed a bunch of types of contraception, emphasizing the risks and benefits. Um, First off, she did review lactation amenorrhea method, And for women using this method who are exclusively breastfeeding infants less than six months old and who have no feedings that are greater than six hours apart, the risk of pregnancy is less than 2%. However, once bleeding returns, that goes up to 25%. So she always really stresses in her patients that amenorrhea is a key part of this method. And that ahead of time, before um, they either introduce alternative foods or bleeding return. She always makes sure that they plan for what the contraception is going to be and um, make sure that they have the prescription well ahead of time if it's going to require one. Then she went on to discuss um, natural family planning and withdrawal, which are physiologic methods for birth control, but have high failure rate um, for typical users, and barrier methods which also have a a high failure rate, I think it's around 15%, but essentially said that for people who have slightly lower fertility because of breastfeeding, this may be a good method for many people, and it has no impact on milk production.
0: So barrier methods, you mean like condoms?
1: Condoms, diaphragm, spermicide, yeah, all of
0: those. Got it. And
1: the, the Effectiveness varies depending on which one you're talking about.
0: Yeah, and when they actually put them in or put them on, too. <laughs>
1: yes, <Yeah>. right. it goes with typical usage. Exactly. So um, next up is intrauterine devices, which have hormonal and non-hormonal options, and these require insertion and removal by a trained um, clinician, and they are more expensive. Um, and typically need to be placed uh, six weeks postpartum because there's a higher expulsion rate if they're placed too soon. The non-hormonal copper IUDs last 10 years but can re- can be removed um, sooner if desired, and they have no effect on lactation. The devices with levonorgestrel, the hormonal IUDs, last five years, and data suggests no change in lactation and limited infant exposure, although there have not been great controlled studies with these. Um, the other progesterone only options include the mini pill, the estonorgesterol implant, which is known, known as the implanon or the nexplanon, um, which is a rod inserted in the arm which lasts for three years, and um, the depot progesterone injections that are given every three months. And all of these methods, um, because they're progesterone only, have the common side effect of irregular menstrual bleeding. Um, The mini pill has a high failure rate if it is not taken at the same time every day. I did not realize this, that, let me try again, I did not realize that backup contraception is required if the pill is taken even four hours late. In addition, there's a theoretic concern regarding decreased milk supply with early postpartum exposure um, to injected progesterone, with the idea that your levels are intended to drop over those first few days, um, but more studies are needed in exclusively breastfeeding dyads.
0: So what you're saying and, is that so what you're saying is that um, there's a concern about mm-hmm. those depot shots that are given before uh, moms leave the hospital.
1: Exactly. And the studies that were done in the past did not show a difference in milk supply, but they were done in babies that were being fed both breast milk and formula. And so I think that those studies need to be repeated in an exclusively breastfeeding population.
0: Yeah, good point.
1: Um, Near the end, she discussed estrogen-containing combination options, Um, which are not the best choice for breastfeeding moms because estrogen is known to decrease milk supply. Those include combination oral contraceptive pills, the transdermal patch, and the vaginal ring. And in that section, I learned that um, the progesterone in some of the pills, which is progestin droperinone, has a spironolactone effect, um, which is theoretically not great for milk supply. And so it can help us choose if we are going to use one of those pills, a different one. And um, I also learned that the patch has a higher risk for causing clots in moms than the pills do. She briefly touched on postcoital contraception. The progesterone-only option is slightly more effective and less likely to negatively impact lactation. And Of course, irreversible contraception, which includes vasectomy and tubal ligation. And the tubal ligation can be done in the hospital or after discharge laparoscopically or um, can be done hysteroscopically in the office.
0: Right. Yeah, it was a good review.
1: I thought that was a great review.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I would just add, just from my clinical experience, that I always warn women with a combined birth control pill that estrogen has such a strong negative effect on lactation that at any point in lactation, even if they're 18 months postpartum and they're still nursing, if I'm giving them the birth control pill, that they ought to just assume that the milk supply may go down. It might not. Um, Some women with high supplies, it, it takes, it's like moving a mountain to get their supplies to go down. But I would say that, you know, estrogen should be avoided unless um, someone is desiring that effect.
1: Yeah, and she mentioned that, you know, as a last resort for treating women who have really a problem with too much milk supply, she she sometimes uses estrogen, which yeah. was very interesting.
0: Yeah, I do that too. Yeah. So I'm going to talk about an abstract that was presented, and this is on breast milk jaundice. So same topic as Dr. Bhutani's, but I think it's important because there are very few studies that are actually done on how we manage breast milk jaundice, interestingly enough. So this abstract was done by Dr. Mira Korana from Thailand. She's a neonatologist. And in her study, she wanted to see if it was really necessary to give formula to uh, babies with breast milk jaundice. And these are babies that were admitted to the hospital because she's, of course, hospital-based. So she took 62 newborns who had breast milk jaundice, and each of the babies had a bilirubin somewhere between 19 and 20, so at a level that you kind of feel like you ought to do something about it, such as admit, lights, hydrate, et cetera she broke them up into two groups she gave one group formula for 24 hours so breastfeeding was interrupted for 24 hours and they only got formula and the other group stayed with breastfeeding both groups were treated with phototherapy which is the standard treatment for many years that we've used to lower bilirubin levels and the reason why we use lights why that standard is because the lights help the baby convert the bilirubin which is coursing through their bloodstream to a substance that can be excreted through the kidneys rather than through the liver. And what she found is that as long as she gave them phototherapy, the formula really made no difference. So the levels of bilirubin came down equally fast, and the baby stayed in the hospital for the, pretty much the same amount of time. So adding formula didn't do anything to help to... Uh, bring these babies down to normal with their bilirubin levels and so she felt that if a baby is admitted to the hospital for bilirubin lights there's no reason to interrupt breastfeeding now of course you know I would say if the baby's not nursing well and the baby needs extra calories and donor milk is not available then of course maybe the baby would need formula but um, but just for the sake of bringing on that bilirubin level for a baby who's nursing well, it's not necessary
1: yeah, and I think that really reflects what I see in clinical practice, which is sometimes the baby that's not breastfeeding well needs even the baby's own mom to express milk and provide it to get the, the volume up, but that rarely is introducing formula necessary.
0: Right, right. Perfect. So did you have something else that you wanted to share?
1: I did. Um, I really enjoyed the Founders Lecture. So. Um, This year, Cheston Berlin, Jr. from Penn State Children's Hospital and Hershey Medical Center um, spoke, and he gave a colorful talk about breastfeeding and chemistry. Um, I really enjoyed, he was a very, um, he was a humorous speaker, and he shared some of his experiences um, with mothers exclusively breastfeeding triplets and quadruplets. Um, He talked about one mother who had pumped eighteen ounces every four hours while her babies were in the NICU. That was the mom of quadruplets. And she produced over three liters of milk every day. And her breast tissue was found to be synthesizing protein almost at the level of liver tissue.
0: No, that was and amazing. I just thought
1: that was remarkable, mm-hmm. you know, the how metabolically active breast tissue is. Um he went on to talk about a variety of things. He talked about Um, some of the experiments that he had done with antipyrene um, to investigate the relationship between serum drug levels and the levels of drugs in breast milk. And this work eventually led to the AAP statement on drugs and chemicals in human milk that was last updated in 2001. And he highlighted that now we have LactMed, which has over 1,000 drugs and chemicals, and dietary supplements, um, which is updated constantly.
0: So let's talk about those for a minute. So the AAP statement is the American Academy of Pediatrics Statement. And LACMED, do you want to talk about what LACMED is? So
1: LACMED is a website through the um, National Institutes of Health in the United States. And here in the U.S., if you Google LACMED, the first thing that pops up is this wonderful database where you can put in any um, medicine, be it prescription or over-the-counter, and you will get really um, helpful information on how much of that medicine ends up in breast milk and what studies have been done and what's known about it.
0: I think he mentioned that he updates that once a month. Yeah.
1: yeah. And um, he went on to talk more about dietary supplements. I think he gets asked about them quite a bit and he has some concerns which are you know based on the fact that there are around 55,000 different compounds which have little known safety data and a lot of which are manufactured without a great deal of oversight and so he just highlighted that what he tells his patients when they ask him is that many times the active ingredients aren't really known when they're herbal um, supplements, and that the purity is uncertain because of not very strict regulation. This sort of went on. He discussed environmental chemicals and um, had a long list of volatile organic chemicals, which are things that we are more and more exposed to um, these days with all of the all of the just electronics and uh, manufactured products we encounter and that they can be found in breast milk and other body fluids, but their clinical importance is generally unclear. And um, after that, he talked about his work with phenylalanine and tyrosine, emphasizing um, the families he's worked with who had children with phenylketonuria. And this is a condition which is common in Amish Amish population in Pennsylvania, where he practices. Um, PKU is a disease where there is an enzyme that is deficient that makes it hard for the body to process certain proteins, and so those proteins build up in the blood and can cause brain damage. He talked about the fact that breast milk is lower in phenylalanine than all of the major cow milk and soy milk formulas, and that exclusive breastfeeding of newborns is important to protect babies with PKU because it takes a few days to diagnose them using the newborn screen. And he has run a successful program to help children as well as mothers with PKU to keep their levels down with a special diet, which is really important in pregnancy so that children are born with, with normal, um, with normal brains, The, the buildup of that protein can cause brain damage. And he showed some, some siblings where one had been treated and not the other. And it was really a striking difference.
0: Yeah, that was amazing. Then, yeah. Yeah.
1: And then at the end, he mentioned an intriguing study um, from this spring showing an association between more frequent chocolate consumption and lower body mass index. Yeah. Pe- I, don't, I don't think this had a direct relation to breastfeeding, but I think mm-hmm. everyone in the audience was very excited about the study.
0: Yeah, people really uh, clapped on that one. <laughs> Yeah, he was a fun guy. Yeah, yeah, I thought it was. And he is just historically such an important guy. I mean, his work with drugs um, and chemicals and breastfeeding is so very important. Um, I'm going to talk about another abstract that was presented, and this was presented by Dr. Mary Ann O'Hara, who's a family physician from Seattle. And she talked about those blebs that occur in nipples of breastfeeding moms. Bloods are those white spots that women sometimes get that occur at the pores of nipples, and they can be swollen and really painful, and they often seem to start from, in my experience, after women have deep plugs in their breasts. We've We've really never known whether these are infections or they're just inflamed tissue, and by not knowing that, treatment can be pretty much trial and error, sort of based on the clinician's experience and judgment. So in her abstract, she presented her method of doing a punch biopsy of these lesions, and she reported on the pathology of the biopsied material. And I would say yes to the fact that she used local anesthesia because just the idea of doing a punch bi- biopsy on these lesions on up all seems kind of frightening. So first of all, she mentioned that when she removed the blebs, the women were really pleased they had immediate relief of their pain, which is great. Um, And she thought that they healed pretty quickly. And so when she sent the bleb material to the pathologist, the pathology was read as not showing any evidence of bacterial or fungal infection, but it looked like there was just a bunch of inflammation there. The presumption was that breast milk was leaking through the ducts into the surrounding nipple and breast tissue, creating this inflammation. So her conclusion based on pathology was that we should be using local or topical steroid ointments on the nipple. And use it over time, and so i asked I asked her based on her research if she what she's you know how much this is changing her practice, and she said that she's no longer removing them, that she's been using topical steroids, and over time it seems to be helping, uh, which I thought was really interesting
1: yeah it was a really interesting talk, yeah I feel like there are a lot of a lot of things that people are loyal things we don't know, and so it's exciting when we see something like this, which is evidence we haven't had before
0: absolutely yeah and I think I'll just talk about one other thing that um, one other lecture I liked which was Dr. Maheshwari's lecture on neonatal necrotizing enterocolitis which we refer to as neck and Dr. Maheshwari is a pediatrician and researcher from the Children's Hospital of the University of Illinois. He studies the mechanisms of inflammation and gut injury um, with necrotizing enterocolitis. So his lecture was pretty much a review of neck, particularly the causes of neck. Um, he talked about how necrotizing enterocolitis is a, is a really severe illness that, in go- that involves gut inflammation, which for some babies can lead to death, um, and in others there's um, death just of the segment of the gut Um, which will oftentimes lead to having that part of the gut removed so that these babies end up having what's called short gut syndrome and of course you and I both know that short gut syndrome can be a life-changing event for these infants because it makes it much harder for them to absorb nutrients so they don't grow as well, they have trouble with cognition um, and they're much more prone to illness um, as they age. So he talked about different reasons why babies get neck, and he talked about how lack of oxygen and lack of blood flow to the gut are really important factors as causes of neck. And then he talked about how, bec- how certain bacteria can increase the risk of neck, like bad bacteria, and especially if there's bad bacteria, the baby's immune system reacts to this bacteria and also creates a lot of inflammation. And I think what, it, what I like about it is that he ties in why human milk is so important for neck because human milk not only helps to reduce inflammation because it kind of it modulates the preemie's immune system but it also creates the environment so that there's healthy bacteria growing in the gut as opposed to what we call pathogenic or bad bacteria that the infant reacts to. Um, He felt that a a 100% human milk based diet was extremely important for prevention as well as probiotics but it's also interesting because I think you and I both know that sometimes breastfed babies do get neck and one of the causal factors may be something that breastfeeding can't prevent which is that uh, decrease in blood flow or decrease in oxygen for babies that perhaps were not able to get on the vent fast enough or get enough oxygen soon enough in their lives so I think, yeah. we, I think this was an amazing meeting we, we learned a lot and um, I think what we'll do next time is talk more about some of the material that we learned from, from this conference.
1: That sounds great. There's a lot more to talk about.
0: Absolutely. If you have any interest in the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine or any questions or comments about this podcast, please email us at abm at b, as in boy, f, as in frank, med.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a few weeks.